Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, your cheat sheets for the week ahead. I'm Andrew Harrison and here to guide us through the next seven days, it's Gavin Esler. Good morning, Gavin. We hope your roof hasn't been blown off. What's it been like on the Kent coast? Good morning. It's been interesting, I have to say. Even yesterday afternoon, walking on the White Cliffs, it was one of those, don't take the dog too near the White Cliffs, you might blow over. It was, and the sea was dramatic and actually kind of beautiful. But I have to say, I feel, I felt, felt a bit alarmed when I saw that the Met Office was suggesting we don't sleep near the windows just in case yeah. they come crashing in. I thought that was, <laughs> that was kind of an alarm I hadn't sounded in my own head, to be honest. Yeah, you're a brave man walking along those, uh, those, those cliff edges on a windy day like yesterday. So the first big story of the week is that the Republican presidential primaries are now a two-horse race, with Ron DeSantis dropping out ahead of the New Hampshire Republican primary on Tuesday. The only candidate with even vague traction left is Nikki Haley, and she is trailing hugely behind Donald Trump. DeSantis endorsed Trump, and Trump responded in a typically classy manner by kicking a man when he's down. Will I be using the name Ron DeSanctimonious again? That name is officially retired. So, Gavin, is that it? Is, is Trump the Republican nominee now? I think he is, and I think he always was. Although, I have to say, Iowa, the Iowa caucuses, Iowa's a lovely state, but the Iowa caucuses are never really actually very interesting. New Hampshire is a bit more interesting for all sorts of reasons, because it's a, it's a proper vote of, of, of people who actually kind of turn up. And they're very proud to be the first primary of the election season and have been for, I think, about 100 years. It does matter. Bill Clinton, way back in 1992, came second in New Hampshire and said, I'm the comeback kid. And of course, he became president. So all kinds of things are possible. I think the most interesting thing that's going on is that the kind of way in which Trump is being seen by some, including Nikki Haley, as not fit for the presidency, not because of his his moral turpitude and all those other things, not because of his politics, but because he's confused. I mean, he seems uh. to have confused her with Nancy Pelosi, who was the Democrat Speaker of the House of Representatives at the time of the of the of the riot outside the Congress. So, the the whole cognitive decline question, which is now being exploited by the Biden campaign, there's a very effective but nasty ad which suggests that Donald Trump is um, is losing it a bit and i think unfortunately the choice is between two people both of whom are uh, attacking the other for not being quite up to the job which is uh, well that's the way it's going to go yeah biden's ad is, uh, is is pretty amusing it's all nikki haley talking about how not on the ball trump is and it ends with i'm joe biden i endorse this message which is uh, <laughs> Unusual for a Democrat to endorse Republicans' message. Trump's um, campaign manager, Crystal Savita, said, it's a distinction without a difference. It's Nikki and Nancy. What's the difference? Well, you know, one of them's a Republican who's standing for president and the other is a Democrat. But apart from that, this, this seems to take uh, you know, Trumpism to special new levels, I would have thought. Oh, well, it also uh, it worries me because then they might say, Iraq, Iran, what's the difference? You know, actually, there's a lot of differences in the world. And Donald, for all his great strengths, doesn't seem to get some of them. Didn't he confuse Switzerland and Swaziland once? And then when called on, he said, my point still stands. <laughs> he, he's never knowingly wrong, is he? Yeah, I think that's, 
Uh, I know we're laughing, but it is pretty awful, actually. And Nikki Haley is doing okay, I think. So she is, maybe she won't go anywhere this time. Maybe Trump will tell her that uh, if she drops out, he's going to make her his vice presidential nominee, because that will be quite interesting. But you wouldn't trust him, would you? If you were Nikki Haley and you got that phone call from Trump, you'd want to see it in writing and you want to hear him say it on TV, because you never know, he might make Nancy Pelosi his running mate. But yes, by, by in, in, in some sort of an administrative error. The New York Times reports that uh, Nikki Haley's campaign had been expecting DeSantis to drop out for weeks. And some Republican donors are downplaying the impact of DeSantis falling out. Eric Levine, who's a New York lawyer and a, a Republican fundraiser, said, if DeSantis's endorsement does for Trump what DeSantis did for himself, Haley will be our nominee. But what, what do you think? I mean, DeSantis' withdrawal was rather groveling. Does somebody who's launched so many attacks on Trump for such a concentrated period of time suddenly turning around saying this guy's going to be a great president? Yeah, exactly. DeSantis has been an awful candidate. He's been at best boring, uh, lacking ideas and pretending to be, you know, the war on woke and all that kind of culture war stuff hasn't cut through. He is a dull dog and uh, he goes back to Florida, I don't think, with his career enhanced in any way. You mentioned the Iowa caucus from last week and the, the kind of takeaway from that. CNN characterized it as turnout drops, voters get more conservative, as if there is a movement for, uh, you know, increased right-wingery amongst the uh, Republican uh, selectorate. But is that really true? I mean, is it a case that the more conservative voters did turn out, not that the voters got more conservative, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, we we have to forget it was minus 20 or something. It was very, very cold anyway in Iowa, which it very often is. You'd have to be the party faithful to turn out anyway, uh, even if it was sunshine, because that's how it works. And yeah, I, I think that kind of voters are getting more conservative is a very misleading kind of headline. I just, I just don't think that's right. I think voters are getting very, very polarized. I mean, one of the most interesting stories I've seen recently was that people from Illinois, which is quite in the area around Chicago, who are conservatives, some of them have been moving to Florida. And some people from Florida, because of DeSantis and some of the things going on there, who are more liberal, have been moving north to other states. So America's always been a, a place of great movement. And in the end, as we know, this election is going to come down to very few voters in very few states. And it's quite possible that Trump could win the presidency, but not win a majority of the votes because of the electoral college system. And that would be unfortunate in all kinds of ways, it seems to me. Well, whatever happens, it's going to be Trump versus Haley from here on in. And the campaign will probably get a lot nastier. Trump has been tossing racially tinged attacks at Haley, calling her Nimbra, uh, which is not her name. She's the daughter of Indian immigrants, and her full name is Nimarata Nikki Randawa. Deliberately pronouncing names is, is a classic racist means of belittlement. Trump continues to get away with this kind of stuff. But do you think that it's possible he might be turning off the majority of voters while riling up his base, you know, that you get... It goes down very well with a room full of people in Marga hats, but the rest of the country just sees it as increasingly ugly. Well, uh, that's uh, that seems to be what's happening in New Hampshire, that he is getting big turnouts as if he's a kind of rock star and in a way he is for, for, for those people. I mean, wh what one has to say, though, is... What more does he have to do to make people think this man is is an unfit human being, not just for the presidency, but for all all kinds of other things? I mean, we know about his uh, his grabbing women inappropriately, and that somehow didn't cause him any problems. And I actually think 
rather like Melania at uh, her mother's funeral. She didn't want him in the car. Why would his wife, current wife, not want him even to travel in the same car with her coming away from the funeral of her mother? And yet American voters still think this guy is fit and decent person for the presidency. It's a very odd situation. And it's, it's a matter for many people of belief. They really think things are going badly. And you know what? If petrol prices continue to go up, gas prices continue to go up in America, if the Russians uh, deny supply, if the trade routes cause problems, if American voters feel bad, they might just vote for Trump because they'll blame Biden. And then we're in a real position of difficulty, it seems to me. There's also a Democrat primary happening in uh, New Hampshire on Tuesday without Joe Biden's name on the ballot. The Democratic National Committee has said the New Hampshire primary is meaningless because there was some kind of chicanery where party officials moved to make South Carolina the first vote. What's going on here? This seems very odd that you can have a primary without the actual president on the ballot. It's both complicated and simple. The, the, the simple thing is that New Hampshire, uh, I've spent a long time in New Hampshire. It's a lovely place. People in New Hampshire want to be the first primary in the country. And somebody said to me, if, if South Carolina move the, their primary to Christmas, we'll move it to, you know, six months before because we will be the first primary. And there's a kind of little standoff going between going on between the Democratic National Committee, who wants South Carolina to be the first primary, because demographically, it's more like the rest of the United States. New Hampshire is predominantly white. It's actually a place where people are predominantly well-educated, more than the American average, and so on and so on. South Carolina is, is uh, the sort of state where um, it's much more reflects the American voters across the country. So there's logic on both sides. But New Hampshire, I'm afraid, is going to win because no matter what happens, they will move the primary forward and forward and forward until they're the first. There's also been strange talk that perhaps someone might be parachuted in to replace Biden on the ticket, that uh, you know that he's not an, an absolute shoe-in for a second term. What do you think, Gavin? I think it's unlikely. I mean, nothing, you can't rule anything out in American politics. And we've got months and months and months of this to go. And some of us will look forward to it and others with dread. Biden is going to be the nominee unless something that we can't imagine uh, is, go- is going to happen. I just don't think you can parachute somebody in to an incumbent president. I mean, he, Biden himself, I've talked to quite a few Americans who think he, Biden himself, might be quite happy, given his age, to go off and do something else if he felt he could k- keep Trump out by endorsing somebody else. But he doesn't feel like that. So I think it's going to be the way it looks now is Biden versus Trump. And that may just go on and on and on. Elsewhere in the world, the Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea are starting to filter through to the economy. The New York Times reports that shipping companies have tripled the prices they charge to take a container from Asia to Europe, partly to cover the extra cost of sailing around Africa. Meanwhile, two U.S. Navy SEALs who went missing after a raid to seize Iranian weapons that were bound for the Houthis have been declared dead by the U.S. government. Gavin, what what are we expecting on this this week? It has kind of the looks of a, a bit of a stalemate. Yeah, it does. And the Houthis are particularly resilient. They have uh, they have put up with a lot and done quite a lot over the past years, despite the efforts of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and, and other countries. And they live there. 
I think one of the things that we have to learn about history of the past 50 or 60 years is that the reason that Vietnam, the Vietnamese war was lost in the end by the Americans was because the Vietnamese people had nowhere else to go and the Houthis have nowhere else to go. So they're going to be there. So the question is, how do you deal with this? And we're realizing that the benefits of a globalized economy also have a an obvious downside, which is we're all affected by this. I was looking at some of the figures and the the first week in January, first two weeks in January of 2023, about 400 ships went through the Suez Canal. This year, in the first couple of weeks in January, 150, so almost uh, two thirds less. Shipping prices have, from Asia to Europe, have tripled. So that is a cost that will be borne by all of us in Europe who are importing stuff. So if it's if it's furniture from somebody you're ordering online and so on, you're going to pay more. We're all affected by this. And it's very, very difficult to see what kind of solution you can have to people, in the case of the Houthis, who've got not particularly sophisticated weapons, which are quite cheap. And the United States uh, Navy and uh, the British and others who are trying to neutralize them using very expensive weapons. It's a very, very tricky situation, and it's not clear where it's going to go. And the idea that this is just a, a distant, purely military issue is kind of a stretch considering how, how closely this kind of shipping affects our economy. There's a report this morning from the EY Item Club, used to be called the Ernst & Young Item Club, saying there's a good chance that the economy may have fallen into a technical recession in the UK in recent months, two negative quarters in a row after the 0.1% fall in GDP in July and September. And if shipping prices and import prices uh, are, are pushed up by this issue, that's going to have a material effect here. And it's going to have a material effect on Rishi Sunak's promises, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we can see something similar potentially happening, for instance, between China and Taiwan, which is a, a, another area where the, you know, the Chinese are very unhappy with the result of the Taiwanese election. And as we know, vast numbers of our semiconductors come from Taiwan. I noticed that Apple's factory in Zhengzhou, in, in mainland China, employs 300,000 workers to turn out. It's not an Apple factory, but it works for Apple. These workers turn out a lot of our iPhones. So our world is so interconnected that uh, it, it's no longer the, the old Neville Chamberlain phrase from 1938 about the invasion of Czechoslovakia was by the Nazis, was it's a faraway country of which we know little. Well, I don't think many of us know much about the, the Houthis or even the politics of Taiwan, but we will find out about it because it will affect our election and potentially the American presidential election too, if the trouble in these places continue because it affects all our economies. And that is just a feature of globalization, which we can't escape, or at least we can't escape it very quickly. In a connected story, there's been developments in the Israel-Gaza crisis over the weekend. Benjamin Netanyahu has doubled down on his opposition to a Palestinian state, despite clear pressure from Joe Biden. American support is, is crucial to Israel's security, but is, is there a gap widening here? Is um, Biden losing patience with Netanyahu? It does look like it, doesn't it? And I think also many Israelis are, look, are losing patience with them as well, including people who would rally round, of course, the Israeli flag and the Israeli state. But they, I think they know that uh, in the case of Mr. Netanyahu, one of the reasons that the war will continue is that his political future and perhaps even the possibility of, of charges against him uh, are all at stake. The question, though, is what would winning look like for israel i mean i can't i can't actually begin to formulate a, an answer to that question obviously anybody with any sense would like the hostages returned but 
Why would Hamas do that? Why would they do it? What would be in it for them? So they won't do it. So what is Netanyahu's game plan just to continue to fight on and on and on and not get the hostages out? I just don't know how he can move on from here beyond doing more of what he's already doing. And that is going to alienate, I think, even more support from within the United States and and other traditional Israeli allies. Back home, Rwanda, more Rwanda, continues to cast a shadow over British politics. Rishi Sunak got his bill through the Commons last week, but uh, this Tuesday, the Lords are going to debate two amendments, effectively saying that the agreement shouldn't be adopted until the protections in it are proven, uh, rather than simply having the UK declare that Rwanda is a safe country. These particular amendments are unlikely to make an immediate difference. But uh, what does the Rwanda plan going to the Lords mean, Gavin? Because it'll be a different kind of debate. It will. It will. It's interesting, isn't it, that maybe common sense will come from the unelected House, the up, the upper House, mm. because there's some a lot of there's a couple of hundred very very smart people in there who look at this Rwanda bill and see it for what it is, which is a distraction. It's a it's an attempt to solve by grabbing headlines uh, a problem which isn't the real quote problem of migration, which is the massive numbers. What do you do about those, if anything? And um, so. This distraction, which has dominated politics and has been, you know, was invented by Boris Johnson principally as a distraction, has now rather unwisely, in my view, become for Sunak something on which he's supposed to be judged by voters. We could see endless delay here, endless delay from the House of Lords. And in other words, nothing actually happening until the general election, in which case it would be just another thing that Sunak has, has unwisely suggested that he can he can change or do, and he hasn't done it. I mean, what kind of government would, in the summer, when you're going to get more people coming in boats, declare it Stop the Boats Week, which of course was a failure, and, and in the middle of winter, we had a government minister saying a week or so ago, well, look what we've done, there's no boats coming over, because of the weather. I mean, I mean, the whole thing is an absolute shambles. It's a distraction, and they very, very unwisely, Sunak has very, very unwisely tied his political future to, quote, solving an issue which didn't really exist as an issue and actually is not the most important or difficult question about migration, which is what do you do if people resent the legal migration which is coming to this country because we've got a shortage of workers and we've got a shortage of workers because post-Brexit, many of those who would come and then go back to their home countries, they'd come seasonally, aren't doing it anymore. And that is just not the way in which this government works, unfortunately. So in short, it's going to go on and on and on without a resolution, it seems to me. Great news for all listeners there. That's what we want to hear. Endless Rwanda forever and ever. Meanwhile, you mentioned uh, the election. Scotland's First Minister, Humza Youssef, has offered to hold talks with Keir Starmer about working together if Labour win the next election. He says it's inevitable that Starmer's going to be Prime Minister. How's that going to go down with the SNP? bit defeatist because it kind of implies that, uh, you know, Labour will do very well in Scotland, which it certainly seems they will. Yes, I, I agree. I think they will. I've talked to uh, quite a few people within the Labour Party in Scotland who are very, very confident. I mean, just to be clear, a few years ago, they had more than 40 out of the 59 seats in Scotland. Then they were reduced to almost nothing, almost a complete wipeout. And now that they're bouncing back and they've got a lot of candidates with quite a bit of experience, some of whom have been in Parliament before and may get back 
in, in Parliament again. So in one sense, it may not go down very well with the, the SNP faithful, but Hamza Youssef is actually contemplating reality and he will probably have to deal with the Labour government. And But I should say that a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about how um, English nationalism was undermining the union. And I asked a couple of Scottish conservatives, quite prominent Scottish conservatives, separately, what would save the union of the United Kingdom and ultimately neutralize the SNP? And both of them independently said a Labour government. That's Scottish Conservatives. So the, the Tories in Scotland are not in a good place. The SNP is not in a good place. And Labour in particular is very, very hopeful of picking up a, a, a around half the seats in Scotland, which would be enough, one assumes, to guarantee that uh, Keir Starmer is in Downing Street. Finally, I know you like a story like this, Gavin. It's good news for all biological life on Earth. NASA has finally got a canister of asteroid dust open four months after it parachuted down through the Earth's atmosphere into the Utah desert. They've got the locks off the canister of samples which are collected in 2020 from the 4.6 billion year old asteroid Bennu, and they can now examine the dust. At the time of recording, the scientists had neither been dissolved down to their skeletons nor turned into murderous, bloodthirsty creatures bent on the destruction of humanity. Are you interested in what might be inside this dust? I mean, do these people ever watch science fiction? <laughs> That's the last thing you do. Don't open the canister. Don't know. Well, look, I, I think I've got I've got a can of jam in my my cupboard, which is uh, almost as old and as is difficult to open, which is why we haven't opened it. I have no idea what they will find. You know, um, I think as a journalist, I've always thought that things are always worth looking into because you never know what you might find. But you might find that we're all going to be turned into monsters as a result. So let, let's let's hope they do it carefully in a sealed room and it doesn't escape. Yes. Where have I heard that before? Do it in a sealed room. Let's hope it doesn't escape. I don't know. It rings a bell. Anyway, the uh, absorption of all biological earth, uh, life on Earth into a single undifferentiated blob, something for us all to look forward to there. And that's Start Your Week. Thank you, Gavin. You're going to go outside now and try and find the garden furniture? I'm going to go outside and take the dogs for a walk, which will be, I think, a lot more pleasurable than the one on the cliffs yesterday. Right. Okay. Stay close to a hedge or a fence or something like that. Listeners, thank you for listening. We have a slate of fascinating editions of The Bunker lined up for you this week, including episodes on the real issues that are driving the US election, not just Trump, Trump, Trump all the time, and what politics can learn from the traitors, because treachery, of course, is a key political skill. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please think about supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. As little as £3 a month will help us pay the bills, fund our talented staff, and get up early for Start Your Week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison with Gavin Eslu. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.